Well, let me say it's an honor and a privilege to be here with you today. I appreciate Steve uh, thinking about me, and um, I was born and raised here, and um, my wife Kathy is with me today, and uh, just a little information, I served the Darien Presbyterian Church for 13 years, and then I was blessed to come over to Fort Frederica Presbyterian Church for three years, and then I helped my home church, First Pres in Brunswick, uh, between interims, and helped them out a little bit, and so now um, I call myself sort of retired, but uh, as I preached a sermon years ago to my congregation, I said, you cannot retire in the kingdom of God, and then several months later, I retired, and they just said, hey, you just preached that sermon, what's going on? <laughs> well, anyway, so it worked out for me, but it's just great to be here with you. I do a little, some things a little bit different. Uh, before I have an Old Testament reading, and I have a New Testament reading, but before I read those, we read those together, hope you'll uh, open your Bibles and read with me, I'd like to share with you just a few thoughts what I think God is trying to communicate with us today. Uh, it's kind of heart to heart, uh, God's heart to my heart, my heart to your heart, and I think that's the way that the Word of God ought, ought to be done best. So I want to share with you a few words from our passage, Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8, 11 through 12. Waiting on the Lord does not mean being idle or indifferent because waiting is harder than working. So for our waiting to be meaningful and spiritually productive, let's do, we want to do what David did in the Psalms. We are to wait in our lives. We are to wait in our lives expectantly. Now, if you look at the Webster's Dictionary, the definition is defined as with an excited feeling that something is about to happen in your life, especially something good. When is the last time that you or I had a sense of expectation, great expectation in our life, or maybe in the church's life? When was the last time? We must wait expectantly because God will work as we trust in Him. Let God have His way in your life and mine. Our hope in life is not in human or material resources, but it's in the power of Almighty God. It is in the power of Almighty God. Listen to God's word. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and He is my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty, mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Now I'd like for you to share with, in the reading of Matthew 7, 13 through 29, and I'll be reading from the New International Version on this in just a moment, but I'd like to share with you these thoughts about what God wants us to maybe understand in this passage. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew in the chapters 5 through 7. Jesus delivered the message near the beginning of his ministry, and it's the longest of any of Jesus' sermons that are recorded in the New Testament. Let's keep in mind that Jesus was not a pastor of a church like I am or Steve. So the sermon was kind of different than the kind of religious messages that we all hear today. Now, depending on the translation, it's about 2,300 words in length. And at its conclusion, decisions are needed and judgments are issued. But in our gospel reading, in just a minute, we have two ways, we have two trees, we have two claims, and we have two builders. And the choice, the choice, people, is one of life or one of death. And the purpose of the illustrations is to warn us all, warn us all that we could be, we could be on the road to ruin. Now, the imagery of the two ways is somewhat vague. It leads to a variety of translations, but the NIV seems the best, and that's why I want to try to use it. So here it is. There is a wide gate, and we may enter it, and we may travel on the broad way to destruction. There is a small gate, and we may enter it and travel on the narrow way to life. Two choices, people. Two choices, but sadly, few ever enter the small gate. Now the term for narrow that we'll read in verse 14 is often used in a sense of persecution. So many argue today that the narrow way images cross-bearing discipleship and the broad way highlights compromised commitment in one's life. But really people, it's more to the point of we may have entered the wide gate and are on the broad way to destruction. We have all heard Jesus' call in our lives to submit to God's perfect law, living a life that's free of hate, free of anger, free of lust, but really so many, so many struggle to obey. Now the two trees illustration is a bit vague, but it makes the same point as the two ways. Jesus uses in our reading that we'll read just a minute the example of false prophets. He says, consider the problems of false prophets. Their fruit, their fruit, the product of their false profession gives them away in their life. Now there was an invasive shrub, you may be familiar with this, called the buckthorn introduced to the U.S. back in the 19th centuries. It's berries, if from afar they look delicious. And you want to run up there and grab one and just chow down on it. But beware, upon closer inspection, you could be in trouble because they are known to be very toxic. The point Jesus is making is simple enough. Our behavior, the good or the evil that we do, gives us away. It gives us away. It shows whether we're on the way to life or we're on the way to death. 
A life that fails to produce the fruit of obedience will inevitably be thrown into the fire in verse 19. And again, Jesus presents the two ways to the way of life and the way of death. And of the two claimants, it is only the one who does the will of the Father who will enter the kingdom of heaven. The other claimant may display all the outward marks of righteousness, being a righteous person, but without perfect obedience, they can only expect God's judgment as is recorded in Psalm 6, 8. Depart from me, you perpetrator of lawless deeds, is what it says. Now here comes the illustration of the two builders, which sums up the two ways. The way of perfect righteousness and the way of self-righteousness. And on the day of judgment, on the day of judgment, one will fall and one will stand. In verse 21, it's written, The will of my Father who is in heaven now becomes these words of mine and yours. The wise person hears these words and does what? Puts them into practice. The Greek New Testament word says, Righteousness primarily describes conduct in relation to others, especially with regards to the right of others in the matter of life. But people, it all begins with one's relationship with Almighty God. We cannot do this on our own, but Christians, Christians possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in him we might become the righteousness of God. As the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are those who hunger, hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. We humble ourselves to the will of God. And every Sunday we say this, don't we? Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have to understand the Beatitudes people, a life in Jesus and for Jesus doesn't automatically promise laughter, success, pleasure, or earthly prosperity. To Jesus, blessed means the experience of hope and joy independent of all the outside circumstances of life that we may encounter. To find true life, people, there's a cost. But the good news is, as I told the children, to follow Jesus, to know about Jesus, no matter what the cost, because you know what? You are never, ever alone. How about these hymns? Perfect submission, all is at rest. I am my Savior, I'm happy and blessed. And another one, my hope is built on what? Nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we wholly lean on Jesus' name. So, if these words of mine are not put into practice, then the future involves what I call a great crash. So Jesus, again, illustrates the truth that no one is good except God alone. Many houses have been built on the sand and face destruction. What is our foundation built on? So the question is there. How then can one survive the great crash?
Listen to God's word as it comes from God's Bible. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come into you like sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away with me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who builds these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus was living everything that he was saying. Let's pray. Mighty Father, may the words of my mouth and meditation of all of us here today be acceptable to you for you are our rock and our redeemer and everything we will ever do and say. And you go before us and you equip us in everything we will ever do and say. Praise be to God. Amen. The Pharisees saw Jesus as what you would call a libertine. Libertine is defined as a person devoid of any most moral principles and any sense of responsibility. He associated, you remember, he associated with the unclean, the sinners. Remember those people? Cared little about the Sabbath day. What did he do? He healed, he taught, he forgave on the Sabbath. He didn't go by the guidelines. And then it says, in the Bible, it says when he was coming to do the things on the Sabbath, he came eating and drinking in Matthew 11. And so Jesus had to respond to this, and he said he had not come to abolish the law or the prophets. In fact, he came to fulfill them. His purpose was to establish the word, to embody the word, and to fully accomplish all that was written. Christ is the culmination of the law in Romans 10. And when it comes to the law, Jesus taught a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and all the teachers of the law. In fact, said Jesus, we will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven if we fall short of the law obedience revealed in the Sermon of the Mount. Now people, the Mosaic law, you know, the law of Moses and his people, God's people, may permit an eye for an eye. But Jesus teaches that perfect righteousness demands that we do not resist an evil person. 
in Matthew 5, 39. So what does that mean? Does that mean hate, retaliation, demanding rights? Or does it demand justice and mercy and maybe a new radical response from me and you? The Mosaic Law may denounce murder, but teaches that perfect righteousness demands a life that is free from what? Anger. Anger. 521. Anger just will eat you alive. We've all experienced that. But anger violates God's command to do what? To love. It is a dangerous emotion that always seems to threaten and to leap out of control at certain times in our lives. Anger keeps us from developing a spirit that is pleasing to Almighty God. So I have to ask the question, does our, does our law obedience, either before or after our conversion, even our baptism in the spirit, in any way get us through that narrow gate? Keep us on the narrow way? Make us a fruitful tree? Support our claims before God? Or somehow help us to build our house of faith on the rock? The answer is no. For our righteousness is always like filthy rags. Isaiah 64. This was a prayer of confession and repentance by the prophet on behalf of God's people, the Israelites. The verse implies people the need for God's grace and forgiveness. Isaiah 64. We've all sinned and we continue to sin and fallen short of the glory of God who will, who will rescue you us from the great crash then? There is one. There is one, though, who has entered the narrow gate, who is a tree without corruption, whose house is firmly planted on the rock, and he has truly done the will of the Father. And those who identify with this one righteous Jew who hold onto his tassels as he enters the gates of the heavenly city and present himself before the Ancient of Days, that's God, are graciously treated as if they are this righteous man. So people, our task, I think, is a simple one. We must seek out the house of this righteous man. Knock on the door and ask to come in and find rest for our souls. The good news is this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened unto you. And everyone, everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and they that knock the door will be opened. Praise be to God for that. So here's a simple, an ending, a simple rule of thumb for our behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. And then grab the initiative, people. Grab the initiative and do it for them. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The marketplace is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time, in your spare time. People, the way to life, the way to God is vigorous 
and requires our total attention. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Almighty Father, you are the way, the truth, and the life. We just give you thanks for this day and for your word, for the music that was played and the energy that is in it. Truly, you are the light, Lord, and help us shine that light, not about ourselves, but about that righteousness that we have because of our faith, and we turn our lives over to you, Lord. Strengthen us this day as God's people as we're in this place, but when we leave this place, help us to find things to do in your name, Lord, so that our house, our life, our stuff in life will be built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're truly blessed in our lives to not only hear God's word, but to be in God's church and just to be able to do the things in our lives that we need to do. But uh, all those blessings come from Almighty God. So at this time, let us receive our tithes and offerings.